0: Hi everyone, I'm Madeline Park, stylist and vintage fashion hound. I believe everything has a story, whether it be clothes or the people that wear them. For season two of Style Stories, I want to get out of the house, but find a place where I still felt at home. Like Lucio's, the iconic Italian restaurant known for its colour and charm. My guests tip their hat to Lucio's by seasoning their stories with a taste of art, food and family, but always bringing to the table their unique sense of style. Today, I'm chatting to Stavrula Adamitis, artist and designer better known by her moniker, Frida Las Vegas. Hailing from Adelaide, Stav's kitsch and clever designs are personal hallmarks of her history and offer nostalgic references to her beloved Australiana. If Chico Rolls, Passiona, and the much shunned bin chicken resonate with your Australian sensibilities, you'll be sure to glean joy from Stab's bombastic designs. It's hard to separate Stab from Frida, but either way, she wears her heart on her sleeve and exudes a delicious self-confidence we'd all like to get a taste of. Keeping up with her kaleidoscope of colour, I've kept Stav in a caftan from her own collection. Committing to her penchant for 80s and 90s pop culture, I've added a pre-loved Versace-inspired supermodel-esque medallion necklace, available at mablandpark.co. I hope you can sit back, relax, and enjoy listening to Stav's story. Nice Hi, <laughs> how are you going? Good, thank you so much for joining me thank at Lucio's today. Me. It's very fitting that we're surrounded by art. Being an artist and designer, you're you've been dubbed the modern Kendone. Um, <laughs> oh God, that's <laughs> that's an amazing dubbing. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is, but truly deserved. Um, and the reason for that is because you know you obviously um, have heroed in your work. Uh, as you call it, Australiana, late 80s and 90s references. Uh, Obviously, they're very nostalgic for your audience. But um, getting into your story, I assume that a lot of your work comes from direct uh, references from your own childhood. Is that fair to say? That's absolutely
1: the case. I'm very much... Memory is something that really drives me and... i'm perpetually inspired by the dregs of scraps of memories i dredge up from my early childhood years Um, and they always surprise me but i i grew up in adelaide Mm -hmm. in the late 80s and the early 90s so i was very much um you know i was an artistic kid i loved i loved drawing i i loved art you know that's that's so many kids do, but yeah. I was very tapped into the pop cultural sphere. Yeah, and I didn't. I didn't really know it at the time, but I used to watch a show called Video Hits, which was like the MTV of the 90s. And I really just I found myself attaching onto like the George Michael video clip for Too Funky, yeah. and you know, scenes. Um, didn't music we all factories. Go, like those oh, supermodels? Like that film clip. Honestly, I remember watching that and going, "All right." A, I want to be Linda Evangelista when I grow up. Yeah. B, I want to have a whole wardrobe of Terry moonclair <laughs> when I grow up.
0: Some... A- a corset with, uh, what is it, the rear-view mirrors on the side? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, see, I want to
1: have a shower with a blonde switch and a <laughs> lace Moogla catsuit. Like, for me, those little moments, I really paid attention to those moments. Yeah. And maybe other kids around me did too and they just forgot. But for me, I as I grew older, those memories became stronger and stronger and stronger. Yeah. And the things that I would eat, things that, you know, I mean – I have a Greek background, so my papu, which means grandfather in Greece, he would come and pick me up from school every day and he'd bring a can of sun kissed yeah. and a little trifle. Yeah. And we'd go to the deli, which is the South Australian word for milk bar, and every day he'd pick me up, we'd walk home, and we'd go past the milk bar and just ogle all the treats yeah. at the milk bar. And for me, that was just such an act of love and caring. Mm. And so now these these... This the food from that time. the The it, concept of the milk bar they take on these sort of magical totemic
0: properties yeah, for me. I you're absolutely right. I, I don't know if it's um, you know I've got a Greek background as well, which I, I kind of shared with you when we were introducing ourselves to each other. But my yaya would come and pick me up, and you know that <laughs> the Greek grandparents in their world this idea of no sugar in a children's diet was not not, not oh, in their dictionary of how to not. look after a child. So I would get a big bag of what we know kind of associate with Alan's party favourites. Oh, yum. And, you know, the strawberries and cream, the bananas, all of that kind of stuff and... Uh, you know, feeding was love, wasn't it? Oh, so. food
1: food was love. And, look, if I could... I'm surprised that I haven't made a textile print devoted to the, the food of my grandparents because when you think of Greek food, you think souvlaki, you know, Greek salad, yeah. chips. But for me and my childhood experience, every single day after the sun-kissed and trifle, <laughs> my grandma would hand-cut potato chips, right. fry an egg yeah. and have on the side with tomato sauce yeah, and maybe maybe twice a week, hand crumb and pound chicken nuggets. Oh yeah. So it was like chicken nuggets and chips, like what they thought was Australian food that they, you know, deep fried in oil and did their sort of European version. You know, those things that they're really special. And you know, we'd sit there and, and watch the bold and the beautiful at four thirty PM yeah. and you know I didn't I I didn't realise at the time just how how much of a time capsule that that space and that age and that time really was, yeah. and it's only now as an adult and feeling the pressures of adulthood, and you know everything that comes along with growing up. That my mind goes back to those those precious memories, and I find that so inspiring. And I really wanted to tell
0: st- those stories, that story that I knew, with fashion as yeah. my medium. And it's funny you say that because in one of your interviews, I read you sharing a story about. Um, you going to school in a pink Barbie jumper with a big spangly earring and kind of getting a little bullied for it. And your response, uh, I feel like, is like the perfect kind of line to start this interview, which was, but isn't life a fashion parade. Um, So as a child, is that how you took fashion on, as something that was quite costume-like and um, theatrical or... Absolutely, Fashion is something that... Actually, maybe fashion's not the word. Style
1: was something that I just... It came... It was a fun sense of play to me. I didn't yeah. see it as something that was a tool to use to impress boys, for example, or to pretend to be something that I wasn't. It was a make-believe that was very much grounded in play. Yeah. And imagining characters and dressing up as those characters and strutting on the street and just and feeling good. I mean, besides this, this infamous Barbie jumper that I wore to a school <laughs> photo and was apprehended for, Yeah. Um, actually it, a couple of years later there was another offending Barbie tracksuit in, in, <laughs> in year two that I would always wear because our primary school didn't have a mandatory uniform. Right. And this one particular young girl in my class, I'll never forget this, she came up to me at recess and said, so... Do you know that your parents spend lots of money on that Barbie brand name? Like, do you know how hard they work to buy Barbie things for you, just so you can wear Barbie and feel like Barbie? I was I was crushed. I immediately started crying. I felt so much guilt and went.
0: Oh. And you're Greek.
1: As and if the guilt is, not I don't know. Enough. I mean, Greek's like a, You know, guilt's a national sport with the Greek background. But you know, this this little girl, she really just she really was saying to me, your parents toil to be able to buy this Barbie tracksuit for you. And I just, I broke down in tears. And my teacher came into the room and she saw what was happening. And she asked what was going on. A little girl told the teacher, her name was Mrs. Hodge, bless her soul. And she gave me the enabling that I needed. And she said, you know, if this is what someone else wants to wear, that has nothing to do with you. Mm. What her parents buy for her has nothing to do with you. Meanwhile, I think the tracksuit was from Target. Like, <laughs> we're not talking Versace
0: here. But this might, might be It too. wasn't some designer collaboration No, no. Children. It was like, you know. That it, didn't exist it was, in our day. Absolutely not. It was
1: like like a 90s, like, like you know, polar fleece tracksuit that had Barbie written on it. Yeah, so, yeah. It wasn't that expensive, but she made me feel like it was and and that fashion was associated with price and price alone. And the fact that um, my teacher stood up for me and went, you cannot tell another human being what to wear. Mm. Like, that is not your prerogative. It is everyone's right to wear and express themselves as they feel they should. And that was it. Like, I was... I was, like, hot pink jeans. I had an oshkosh bagosh, like a, a, a hat that had a big flower in the oh, middle. Yeah, of, oh, yeah, very girlfriend. Oh, totally blossom. <laughs> like, you know, I, people would tease me but I just – I didn't care. Yeah. And I just – I had fun. And I thought it was fun and, and I could see that when people were teasing me that it was a reflection of them and it yeah. actually had nothing to do with me.
0: But it takes a certain self-confidence to kind even as a kid to go – Right, I'm like I'm gonna be a little bit different, and mm. that's fine because it feels like me, and i mm. I love it as a form of expression. And it, with or without your teacher's kind of support in that one moment, mm. um, it still takes some guts to kind of be that kid. absolutely. so were you were you a strong-minded, self-confident little girl? You know, I was quietly confident, but I was.
1: I was shy and I wasn't really I was very sensitive Mm. like if you'd say anything I would cry at the drop of a hat as I just mentioned (laughs) like I was very sensitive yeah and my mum and my dad were very like pragmatic and said you really have to toughen up like this world this this world is out to get sensitive people Mm. so you have to really see you have to see reason and you can't just you can't flip on an emotional switch every time, yeah. which I felt was maybe not the best advice in hindsight. But I know what they were getting at, mm. and I think it was just the the confidence that I had inside that was it. It was natural, and it was something that I just thought everyone has the right to be themselves. I'm not telling anyone else that they should not wear Chicago Bulls caps just because that's what everyone else is wearing at school right now or you know who am I to tell anyone what to do so why should they tell me what to do yeah I just I found that sort of tolerance natural and um I just I guess I just had a thick skin and and went as long as I'm having fun in my own universe then it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks
0: and in terms of your family network was that they kind of your parents I don't know if you've got siblings but did they kind of support You'd just be like, stab you do you, girl." Was that the kind of the attitude? Or? Yeah, I think
1: I think so. I think my family knew that they had a a quote unquote arty girl with mm. a capital A and a capital G in the house, yeah. and so they never they they never really discouraged me. I think they just they knew. And to be honest, my dad my dad's quite eccentric, and he, he he's is. a musician, and right. um, my you know my mom loves fashion, so it was probably not like. That much of a departure from who Probably, they were. That that's it. Like yeah. my dad was in a in a band in the eighties and you know. What they were, kind of
0: music did he
1: play? Oh, they played like Beatles-esque pop music. Oh my
0: god. When it, it was not Beatles, cool. I was obsessed
1: with the Beatles and... Well, they actually had more of an ELO vibe because they had a cello in the band. Oh and amazing. They were on they had a number one hit in the early eighties. They were yeah. sorry, Dad, they were one hit wonders. <laughs> what was um, the band name? They were called Vertical Hole. Okay. And you can look them up on YouTube <laughs> and, <laughs> and see some about. hilarious photos of my dad with a mullet and a bad Roxy Music imitation <laughs> suit in the clips but they were on countdown and you know my dad pushed against the Greek culture and that right. was that was not cool to not be a doctor or a lawyer and in the 70s to mm. pursue music and to actively pursue having a band as a, a viable creative business so in some sense my dad my dad set me on the right course yeah. and he would used to say to me you know you know what you never want to be when you grow up? Just never be mediocre. Yeah, right. Like whatever you do,
0: don't be mediocre. So I I, I was encouraged. And I was going to ask you about that because, you know, often in Greek families, uh, without stereotyping people, there, there is this kind of conservative idea that you, you do you know a a professional job especially if you've got the ability and the means and that you know everyone's worked really hard to get you where you got you need to go so how how else did your kind of other than food and your dad kind of actually pushing against Mm -hmm. the grain a little bit on that mentality how else did you think your greekness kind of influenced you as a kid i think it
1: was the sheer glamour of my relatives yeah like i'm not sure if you remember during this time but remember how weddings in the 90s like they were a big deal
0: yeah People and christenings. Oh, and christenings. And, <laughs> name days.
1: Name days, <laughs> christenings, weddings. Like these were fashion parades. Yeah. Like, you know, Mercedes Benz Fashion Week has got nothing
0: on an nothing. ethnic Australian wedding. Or just church. Church at Easter time was, exactly. it was like, you know, you, you would be literally seeing all the designer catalog. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I remember
1: my mum would buy a new outfit for every occasion and she would remember events. Oh, yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. Events was a big fave. And yeah and I was just like oh Mum, I love your I love your fake Givenchy turned event suit and and she she had this sort of short like very Kris Jenner now haircut yeah yeah big pearls like big clumpy earrings and my aunties all had oh my gosh my memories of my aunties and looking at their photos from the 80s with like the high-waisted spray-on jeans like big hair. I remember they had this Revlon shade of pearlescent pink Mm. nail polish and the big claws, gold jewellery, this sort of natural effervescence and friendliness, you know. There's something about and this isn't just for Greek-Australian women. I think Italian-Australian, Lebanese-Australian, Maltese-Australian, that sort of European sensibility. Um, There's something very glamorous about European-Australian women, but they're very
0: they, they carry, carry themselves and they take a lot of pride in their appearance that's certainly how i grew yeah. up to the point where i almost rebelled against that at some point because it was like oh it's not just all for show but obviously i've gone and deferred to it because i obviously appreciate it like you all those that's right. nostalgic references to it growing up that's but, it yeah. and, and
1: there, you're right there was a sense of performance to other people in the community and that yeah. was something that i didn't like yeah. or connect with yeah I guess oh we're at church oh better have a new handbag mm. lest you know thea so-and-so <laughs> catch me wearing something <laughs> twice like I did I did sense that as a little girl and I didn't like that yeah. I didn't like the somewhat um keeping up with the Joneses mm-hmm. you know keep a side eye I guess in in Italian the word is the la bella figura the right you know what is what the beautiful deception like what what can you show to your neighbor yeah. that may, maybe isn't your most authentic self or that's behind the scenes I didn't like that but but from a purely aesthetic perspective yeah. holy. wonderful <laughs> so inspiring and it's something that you know I talk to my aunties now and and we look at some of their old photos and I'm now at the point where I'm asking them questions going you know for such a ultimately conservative and let us say sexist culture mm-hmm. mm. how were you allowed to leave the house like mm. how did your dad let you leave the house in these big stilettos these you know tight jeans you were showing off your banging body yeah, yeah. big hair like you were no shrinking violet yeah and the 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 sooner i started asking these questions The more my aunties were saying that fashion was a form of rebellion for them. Right. And it was um, the clothing and the makeup and the hair that they embraced was a codified way that they could sort of tell their parents, F you, I'm a woman now. I'm not a little girl. My virginity is not something to keep in a box and to keep it, you know, in the. As a prize. As a prize or in the context of community. And of course, I mean, Madonna was the ultimate sort of juzzy fashion icon in the 80s yeah. and I think Madonna was a huge reference for that generation of, of women um, and really inspired them to have the confidence
0: to break free and you know give a bit back with their fashion so it's very it's very very layered but it's it and it is funny you say that because one of the things that you do promote about your clothing is that it, it in um, enabling of self-confidence that's right in wearing what what you produce that's right yeah
1: and wearing you know fashion is ultimately it's a language Mm. and it's a code and it has its own syntax and there's grammar and there's rules and rules that you can break but i really i think that no matter what whatever makes up fashion it really has to come from a place of um you wear something that makes you feel good Mm. and whatever you define as feeling good that's all that matters if you feel comfortable in anti-fashion i guess the jerry seinfeld norm <laughs> core, like just jeans sneakers and a t-shirt that's fine
0: yeah you
1: know that's still a statement you are yeah. saying i actively reject the world of fashion and yeah. care not for it yeah. that's an important statement too yeah yeah 100
0: but there's, there's there's
1: nothing worse than putting on i think there's nothing worse than putting on a mask or
0: putting on a costume and it not coming from ...an authentic place. Yeah. Um, And I I, I do want to ask you about a sense of costume later in the interview... ...but going into Stab as a teenager... um, and I know that you you kind of have a fascination with teenagers, or almost like it seems as if you have like I feel like you have a responsibility <laughs> to them um, with your work. But I, I want to get to know you as a teenager. <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> <laughs> uh, and particularly, you obviously honor pop art in your work. Yes. What What were your like? Go-to pop culture references that defined you as a teenager as you're starting to really kind of well, find look, yourself. I
1: was a super, I was a self-confessed super nerd. Like, yeah. I loved reading. I went to an all-girls school, yeah. so like socializing with boys was like, and I'll just leave that till uni. <laughs> so from from year eight to year twelve, I was like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna sit here and learn and absorb. Like, this is what I'm here for, yeah. and. I really um, – I had a really great art teacher. Now mm-hmm. that I think back, her name was Mrs Muir and she introduced me to the idea of postmodernism mm. and I felt very connected with that. Um, I think the school curriculum in Year 12, the artist that most schools had to study was George Giddos and right. as because I went to an all-girls school, she said – Stav, I think there's an artist that you need to look at called Frida Kahlo. and And she introduced me to Frida Kahlo's work. And like so many people, I was just in love with Frida's sense of... um, ..her sense of self, her portraiture, the surrealism, the way that she could sort of see her life through a lens, use the work to Mm -hmm. then reflect back certain points of her life... And I can't say that I really, I think Frida's work was like a thing for me as a teenager, but I don't, even though I've taken on her name as yeah. my, my own
0: moniker now, I don't really, I don't love it anymore, but right. at the time it was crack. And do you think that part of that, and I'm just speculating here, was a sense of um, representation, even though, you know, she, she's Mexican, percent, mm. you know, the... The ethnicity absolutely. of the woman that didn't look like Linda Evangelista. That's right, and but still in a beautiful artistic form. That something you identified with, absolutely. And yeah. you know, connecting with for me, connecting with female artists was
1: just it was something that I wasn't really exposed to. You know, mm-hmm. there weren't any female artists in my family. Yeah, all my all of my relatives became teachers, basically teachers yeah. or or stay-at-home mothers or, you know, other sort of administrative jobs. Mm -hmm. So I really, in Frida, I saw someone that kind of looked like me, dark skin, dark brows, dark hair, um, you know, and and I wasn't really seeing any, any other artists like that. And then with... And then with the pop art factor, you know, a lot of teenagers go through their Andy Warhol phase and yeah. I was definitely one of them. Yeah, And and now, similar to Frida, like I find Warhol's work really detached, very cold now, right. definitely more of a Jeff Koons pop art gal. But at yeah. the time, like, you know, I really, I read Popism back to front. I, I watched his movies, which are, you know, very painful to watch, but I thought I was so dreadfully arty for sitting there and (laughs) and watching them so you know I really I really became immersed in educating myself about art and my my lineage before me because I felt that I I felt like I belonged with these people I felt like they were family yeah maybe distant cousins or people that weren't related by birth but there was something that 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 would thread us together through time and and of course um you know the pressure that I received from parents in terms of career because Mm -hmm. when you're a teenager this is when you're asking questions of what am i going to do with my life what will i do when i grow up what will i do for money and you know my fiscally responsible greek parents um at careers day they encouraged that i become a financial advisor (laughs) (laughs) to which i was like no i i want to go to art school and they didn't they did not approve of that right Said you have to go to university. Even your
0: even your dad with yeah, his even, kind of musical re- rebellion. Yeah, yeah. Even
1: my dad, they yeah. they would have been quite happy if I had gotten in, into finance or become a real estate agent. Or yeah. I think they. I, see, I could see that though. Yeah. You know, I, can, I, I, I can. I can I I see you. me selling houses <laughs> in a you know, caftan.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it definitely a point of difference. I was
1: you know I was mad at them. I was yeah. really mad. I'm yeah. like, hang on, how can you enable? How can you enable someone to be themselves? And then it's like, all right, that enough of that, enough playing. Now's the time when right. the real world sets in and you have to give all that up. And I really struggled with that idea of, hang on, well, some people have made a career out of this. Why why, why shouldn't I? Yeah. And their response was always, it's hard. Yeah. And in, inside myself, I thought, well, it's hard to be good at anything. If you yeah. want to be the best garbage person in the world, you have to be the best like yeah. you, you have to have a, a business acumen it's not it, it it's not the job it's your mentality
0: yeah and certainly I know again from my own I'm bringing uh, I remember saying to my mum uh, as a as a teenager I, I'd really love to do fashion design oh, but forget like about you it. <laughs> I was I was bright enough to to do lots of different things mm-hmm. and my mum was like well you're not you know, you're creative, but you're not that artistic, and mm. it, and it's hard and a difficult industry. So find something that's probably a little bit more on. predictable. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. That you can fall back on and and can make uh, a future for yourself out of. Which I, and and so I did, and I came to fashion as a second career in my life yep, cycle. Yeah, me too. Yeah, um, but it's you know I I don't blame her for for kind of trying to give me in that but but those kind of uh, ideas do really steer you away as a as a teenager when you're trying to form your own identity
1: and when you're scared and not really knowing do I take the plunge and quote unquote you know be my best self yeah or do I fall for a a, you know a second rate version that I know I can do and as you said you know if you have the marks to do to have options, then you can yeah. do other things. 100%. I could have studied medicine, I could have done
0: law, but yeah. I chose not to because I didn't want to. So were you, like a, uh, it's like being an arty you know, teenager and yes. being influenced by all these things are a little bit deeper than probably most teenagers, you know, <laughs> <laughs> sitting there watching Warhol films. Uh, was there a darkness in, your, in the way you represented yourself as you became a teenager to kind of represent that arty student or Look, I would were never, you still bright and out there? I wouldn't
1: say <laughs> that I was – I would never use the goth word but yeah. I discovered op-shopping. Right. And that for me was – I mean, op-shopping isn't inherently dark but – I think in about year 11 and especially year 12, like vintage became, that was it. Yeah. I was like, I don't want to, sh- if my contemporaries are all wearing like Supre, Ra rah, mini skirts yeah. and off the shoulder crop tops with slogans from Big Brother, like <laughs> Sarah Marie <laughs> <laughs> or something stupid, I was like, I want to wear I want to wear an, a beautiful 70s rayon wrap dress with snow boots and a cameo necklace and, of course, I came of age in the time of Sex and the City, so, yeah, well, you know, Carrie Bradshaw mixed and
0: matched vintage and that was okay. So. And <laughs> you had the very fortuitous opportunity of working with Pat- Patricia Field and I was going to say to you that's like a... a Teenager growing up in the '90s, working for Patricia. If you loved fashion, that's like a wet dream. That's it. How did that happen for you? Well, after so after high school, yeah. um, I studied a
1: degree of arts and media. Okay. So my original plan was to become a journalist right. and to similar to yourself, work in publications and you know maybe maybe join the fashion team as an you know assistant. But yeah. you know, shining shoes and whatever it took to <laughs> quote unquote work up the publishing ladder, and at the time that I was studying media, this little thing called the internet blog started to explode, mm. and I saw the writing on the wall and just went, "Oh my god, journalism's dead." Yeah, like this is this industry will not be sustainable in the long term, mm. and I I worked at the student newspaper and I was. Um, I did a film elective, so I actually found my way somewhere in between doing sort of copywriting and freelance writing work and a very low-budget, terrible film costume design and styling work in Adelaide. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough that I met a group of people who ran a street press. Right. And back in the day, before Instagram, yeah. you would pick up magazines that would you know, show you where you could eat where you could go to art galleries, where you could shop in, mm. in a particular place. So I became the fashion editor of a street press in Adelaide called okay. Merge. Yeah. And through that job, I had a very wonderful editor who gave me complete creative control, which I probably never had since until now. Yeah. And I built up a styling portfolio <sighs> of shoots that were very much in my world. So right. those, if you look at those shoots, it, it, it's kind of like, baby Frida you can you can see it all there yeah and I used those shoots to make a portfolio and I sent Patricia Field's team an email right I just I sent the pitch and said you know I'm coming over to New York I wasn't but I yeah. just said that I was yeah um here's my portfolio I'd love to come do an internship and to my surprise they wrote back and said sure when are you coming here and so I was like, "Oh, crap. like now I now I have to go." Yeah, well, you have to go. Yeah. yeah, like I mean, I was expecting to, you know, receive nothing. It was just one of those, put it out there, see what the universe holds, and 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 I got a response back. So I did go, and I did an internship for two months there in two thousand and ten. At this point, point. Um, and I stayed with my my mum's cousins in Flushing, Queens. Oh. So Um, I had the, like... (laughs) That couldn't be any more fitting for you than your nanny
0: references.
1: (laughs) Totally. So I I lived in Flushing with my uncle and my auntie who were greek Americans. So it was like getting in touch with my my American-Greek family and seeing how the culture worked on that side of the pond, which was spookily similar. Um, You know, working with Pat Field and her team during the day and uh, doing anything from working in the shop and... Um, you know, merchandising stock, and because I was an internal, all my work was fairly unglamorous, but it didn't matter. I was there, and at this point, the Sex and the City two movie was about to come out. So, because the shop had a celebrity clientele, that you know, I'd be like putting clothes back on the rack, mm-hmm. and oh, there's Drew Barrymore that's yes. coming into the shop, and
0: and it was it was in. Um was it the Lower East Side, Her or... That's right. Yeah, it was on, yeah.
1: It's on the Bowery. So yeah. right in the middle of Lower East Side, Chinatown. It was very much that um, that Broadway, just American dream. And so you dream. were there in 2000 and...
0: 2010,
1: right. I think. Yeah. But it was, it was great and it definitely, it was an eye-opening experience. I can't say that everything was great about it. I'm yeah. not just the... Not just because it was hard work, but I definitely saw a side to the fashion industry that I wasn't I wasn't prepared for. Yeah. And I'll I'll be I'm I'm very honest about this. Um there was it was a very bitchy, clicky world. Yeah. And I had met some lovely friends that, you know, took me under their wing as the, you know, the Australian implant, but mm. there are a few people sort of higher up that were very, they were very they did not like that this newcomer had come in and
0: yeah.
1: um, I got the sense that their jobs were very on a knife's edge mm. and new new blood met competition. Yeah. And they actively would sort of tear people down around them and maybe it's my good old-fashioned, you know, Adelaide girl values but I just remember thinking if this is supposed to be the epicentre of inclusivity, um, you know, queer culture... Mm. Um, exploratory fashion it was just it, it it was very it could be a very unwelcoming place at times right. too right. and I made a mental note and you know I really was thinking of moving overseas and working and, and taking my career elsewhere yeah and I think because of my experience at Patfield I decided you know what I love Australia yeah and isn't it funny how no one embraces it anymore? And, and I had the well, you truly have. <laughs> yeah, well, the kernel of the idea came to me then that just went, you know, why why is Australiana thing of the eighties? Mm. Like, w- what what are people running from in Australia that, you know, they go to places like London and Paris, and yes, they pursue opportunities, but there's an active quashing of Australian culture, symbols, yeah. spirit. Um, you know, there's something really lovely in parts about our culture our our casualness our yeah. friendliness yeah our um the way we open up and sort of have a chat in public places with strangers I mean that doesn't happen in the states yeah. for sure people yeah. are like are you trying to rob me why are you talking to me <laughs> especially in New York so that was where this idea sort of started right there and me thinking you know if I ever if I ever started my own label, I would do it in Australia and yeah. I would not want to do it here. Yeah. So that
0: was that was really important. And so you, you, you've st- started your label and obviously the kind of Australiana aspects to it come with a great sense of joy and nostalgia as we've already talked about. But there is this level of joy and happiness to your work and you're also very funny like <laughs> <laughs> you I, when we were organizing our interview just even in, in the written word you can <laughs> you can feel your humor what i want to know is with all the bright color and all the lovely joy that you kind of bring out to the Externally to the rest of the world, like a comedian, comedians often have a darker, more sinister side. Is there an element of that to you, or oh, absolutely? I mean, yeah. you
1: can you can never just be a one note person. Mm. And yes, of course, I have a dark side, and you know, um, I mean, as with anyone, I go through bouts of extreme anxiety. And not that I would say it's crippling or that I sort of say that I suffer from anxiety but mm-hmm. at times we all do yeah, and, sure. and luckily I have a very supportive husband who's really really a great great friend who can go this is not worth stressing about mm-hmm. like the word stress and he, I love that he taught me this stress is when you're not in control yeah. so do whatever you can to get in control and you'll remove the stress Yeah. like just be on top of things get the right information especially when it comes to things like fashion production which is just oh it's the oh it's the pits like yeah. it's it might seem really glamorous and fun but most of the time I'm talking you know to fabric people and and managing customers and packages gone mm. wrong and mm. all this stuff that's like oi, you know yeah. I have sending something to a to America, that's maybe got six hundred dollars worth of clothing. It's gone yeah. missing. Yeah. Following up with the insurance. Do I remake another one? How long is it going to take to get like stuff like that? The logistical side of things can be overwhelming. Yeah, but sure. In terms of a darkness, like I do, I do have a darkness, but it. I choose not to really show it in my work. Yeah. And I also have an alternate arts and drawing style that I do purely for myself
0: that I don't share with the world. Right. Because it's it's black and white and it doesn't yeah. involve I, colour. I figured that there would be something artistic in you that wasn't as bright. It, only because you, you obviously um, are a, a, a thinker and someone that it has that depth to kind of deconstruct something that's right um, and i think that comes you know with that can come you know that um you know it just uh, i don't know if darkness is the right word no but, i know but i know a what contrast. you mean.
1: and maybe something that's a bit more subtle and introverted and yeah. moody i mean yeah i can be an yeah. absolute moody bitch <laughs> from time to time but also there's this thing that I have really struggled with which is the the notion of brand consistency Mm. and as soon as you begin a brand and you you create your language and you go right, here's the symbols, here's the colour palette, here's the world, it's almost like you create, as a designer, you create your own prison when you make that world because you make it, you can extend upon it with different product lines or different... Me- methodologies or executions, but ultimately, if I switched from you know producing very bright um, pop art symbolic printed kaftans to you know abstract and Demüller meester esque knitwear, even it though won't it won't make it's sense, it's something that I would feel
0: like I was into. It would not make sense from no. a brand perspective. And and you've come to be known from, from an Instagram, you know, social media perspective as someone that does truly live your brand I do Um, because it is just me (laughs) (laughs) but there is an element almost of costume to it and your brand also has quite a strong (laughs) relationship with drag so you've got RuPaul alumni wearing your clothes you've got this lovely relationship with the Imperial Mm -hmm. Hotel which is obviously known uh for its iconic drag shows and being the opening Mm -hmm. scene in Priscilla um is there a time where that sense of like the hair, the makeup, the the bright kind of costume element mm. to you? Will we ever find you in black activewear or Abs- a grey mull track
1: Absolutely. And I generally, I'm <laughs> traipsing around the suburb where I live. Um, I'm not. I'm not afraid to not wear makeup or to not dress like myself. Yeah. Um, you know that part of me. It's still me. You know, active wear top not. You know, just hungover, like dark glasses, no makeup, no colour, like mm. of, of course. And it's not something, you know, it takes it. takes a lot of work to, you know, curl your hair and do your <laughs> makeup, and and some days I just can't be asked. Yeah. And and I'm totally at peace with that. Yeah. But some days I can, and you know, it, that's that's what's been really tricky with um COVID now. It's like that the, the opportunity to dress up. And yeah. to take a stroll and and really own your space and your your body and be in the world—it's I mean—it's taken away now. Mm. And I definitely like I would never I'd never just curl my hair and put on makeup and wear this at home because yeah. there's no need to. I, yeah. I, I I there's no point. Like yeah. I am definitely I understand how my style could come across as a costume, um, but it it's not. It's, it's absolutely not a costume and it's – maybe my references come from costume. Mm-hmm. So um, obviously vintage and sort of Hollywood costume of the 40s and 50s is a big subconscious influence that maybe isn't that obvious when you look at the work straight away but it's there. Yeah. Um, you know, looking at beautiful films like The Women and Joan Crawford's beautiful turbans and like the mm-hmm. jumpsuits and the, flo- the flowing fabrics and that – that's a style that I really love. But at the same time, you know, who has time to dress up like that every day when we have to be three, four, five things to 10 million different people in modern life? It's just not practical. Yeah. And ultimately, I know it's hard to believe, but I am a practical lass deep down.
0: <laughs> Hence why a caftan such a practical shape. It suits everyone. Well, that's that was one of the things I was going to ask you is that you do design... A, 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 shapes that fit most bodies yes and um and you in that way your work is uh your design work is very inclusive um and I want to know was that you know you you kind of like to break a mold you like to kind of you've disrupted the fashion industry somewhat in that you haven't necessarily gone down the path that other fashion designers in the Australian environment would have gone down. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yet, you know, as I said, you, almost anybody could wear your clothing happily. Um, was it an intention to be inclusive in, for in your sure. design work?
1: Absolutely. And it was very... That was from the beginning, mm-hmm. really. And I find that good design should solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And for me, the problem was what to wear in summer that wasn't high-waisted <laughs> hot pants shorts and a singlet yeah. top yeah. that was all you could really find in Sydney at like general pants and, you know, sort of quote-unquote mainstream sh- shops yeah. or sort of frilly like lover-esque dresses. Like that. that's it in yeah. terms of the Australian market. And I... I really find dressing up for Sydney's humidity in summer quite difficult. Like, it's hot. You know, you want to, if you're sitting at a desk during the day and you go meet some friends for a drink after work or for dinner, like, what can you wear that will suit being sitting down in an office or maybe, you know, working as a a waitress and having leggings and jeans or wearing with heels? Like, what is a garment that can be multi purpose Mm. that purposely hides the body or doesn't cling to it mm. because let's face it some days you just you just don't want to have something especially that clings in onto that heat you. Yeah. especially in that heat and you know I'll, I'll get real with you here like I was like I want to wear something on my period yeah, yeah. <laughs> like when I feel bloated and <laughs> when I just feel <sighs> awful and I and I want I want to hide and just go I just want a big I just want to wear a big fabulous sack yeah and I sort of I said that out loud one day and went hang on a fabulous sack, mm-hmm. <laughs> a glamour sack, like a big potato sack, but, you know, that is that has some element of fabulosity. Yeah. And so I started mucking around with textile designs for these sorts of big, um, loose-fitting, doesn't-fit-the-body-at-all shapes. And what I didn't realise was that I I was falling in love with these sorts of silhouettes because they allow for more graphic prints. right. And sort of a few years later, when I did my activewear and swimwear, mm. I really found having smaller, air, physical area space of fabric a huge challenge to design textiles for. I'm like, hang yeah. on, what do you mean I don't have three meters to play with? This yeah. is, this is difficult. And and I I can't say I don't think I'll make any more
0: swimwear or activewear because I just didn't enjoy the textile process. It so you you. It, it's an interesting point because your canvas has gone from earrings yes. to clothing yep. to large scale installations yep. and artwork, um, even to food. So you know, <laughs> like you've done a collaboration with Chin Chin and they've had a menu that has been dedicated to you. <laughs> what canvas is next? Is it Las Vegas? You you've oh kind my of gosh. <laughs> well look. I was I was thinking of opening up a shop
1: right pre-covid yeah and I had a pop-up shop last year that was really successful and I just it was successful because I was able to meet people in the flesh and have a dialogue with people outside of the online world and you know when someone comes up to you and says can I just say this bikini I've been looking for a flattering fabulous bikini for years and you have solved my problem yeah thank you like as a designer I feel all right my my work is done here people might not feel comfortable sending that online or Mm. or commenting or even you know sharing as a private message but when you have a physical space I think people you have a a two-way dialogue that is that's genuine that's not controlled by an algorithm that you know isn't owned by Facebook let's be let's be real but I, I was thinking of doing a shop and you know, I really, I'm really sad that now the whole world has changed, and I'm not able to basically do the the Fiorucci of Sydney that I was <laughs> that I was planning. That was, you know, neon neon color fabric um, accessories, clothing. Um, and even bringing in bits and pieces from other designers as well. Right. So, Ma- making Frida Las Vegas World. Is that that, that, that was that, that was the plan? That was the plan. <laughs> so I really wanted to take it into a space that was very much um, top to toe. You could you could tap in at a pair of earrings or a scarf or something smaller. Yeah. And and then if you really if you really appreciated it and you connected with the work, you could go the whole hog. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, now I mean, as with everyone, like those plans are completely thwarted, and and I'm faced with extreme artist's block. Just going crap, what do I do? Like yeah. I, I, you know, my clothes are they're things that people wear to go out to be yeah. seen. You know, um, as you mentioned, a lot of performers love wearing my yeah, we've had Katy Perry, Sam Smith. Yeah. yeah, because they are, you know, the designs are so bright and colourful and they're, they're statement pieces. Yeah. You... you you strut your stuff, you go to an event and you create a statement. Now, I mean, you can't really create a statement at home. It's. I love when I see people doing fashion challenges in isolation going, <laughs> right, I'm going to wear my wardrobe and and wear it at home. But, I mean, I couldn't do that every day. And, and it's also I don't think people have the disposable income anymore. You yeah. know, everyone's,
0: everyone's afraid of, of what's to it's come. A, it's a challenging time where we can't predict a lot of, the future, is they keep saying you would just have to go week to week That's or it. day to day even.
1: That's it. Yeah. And, you know, artists are – I think a lot of people go, all right, artists, now's your time. The world mm. is sad. The world is going through turbulence. We need you to lift us up with your vision, your inspiration, your mm. gumption. And actually I find it's like, guys, like artists are – A, we're all juggling multiple jobs but B, you know, they're sensitive people so mm. we are feeling – the same way. The same, yeah. you know. I'm not inspired to do anything at the moment. It's, right. There's no... As you said, my work is colourful and happy and yeah. there's not a lot to, to celebrate yeah. at the moment. So it feels... It feels odd. But, you know, who, who knows? Something that I was... I was working towards but it was still a long way away, which actually kind kind of ties into the health COVID space. Yeah. Um. I was talking with the Women's and Children's Hospital in Adelaide about... I had this idea about making custom textiles for the children's hospital and doing um, sort of custom doctor's smocks and nurse's outfits and pillows and hospital gowns that aren't that sort of awful mint green that you look at and immediately go, oh, shit, I'm in in hospital. Um, especially for little kids and kids and and especially teenagers too that are stuck in hospital sometimes for months on end. Mm. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice to be able to work with, you know, a medical hospital-grade sort of fabric supplier and do an on-demand service where as an illustrator and as a fabric designer I could... You know, talk to a kid, they could give me a photo of their pet or something that they love or their parents or yeah. their bestie or something that really meant something to them. And then before they go into surgery or some sort of procedure, or they have a nurse that comes and looks after them, they put on that robe. Yeah. And they take away the visual signifier that you are sick. You are sick, yeah. you are out of society, you are shut in and isolated in this place. So just something that humanised the hospital experience. So mm. it, it's definitely left of centre and doesn't really fit into, like, you know, chin-chin,
0: imperial, <laughs> performing. But, but I think there is... There is a wellness aspect to colour, but it doesn't. It, for me, it perfectly ties into mm. who you are and what you're about in terms of your clothing, providing joy and a sense of um, personal attachment mm. to the emblems of what you wear. That's right. Um, and and truly giving joy in a space that um, is is a little is a little sad and That's it. and sometimes not that hopeful. And it's something that you know it's quite
1: an idea like that. I haven't. I've done my research. I haven't seen anything. Pop up in the health space, but no. I, I don't think fashion is as frivolous as people think. Like yeah. it it does have the power to change your mood, to change your state of mind, and you know if we're talking a teenager that's a, a thirteen year old that's in hospital who maybe comes from the country, their parents have come and visit once every four weeks because they yeah. don't live in the city where the hospital is, and if there is a print on the curtains on their in their wall that maybe has got a symbology of their pets, their town, where they come from, what 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 makes them happy. And just I brighten mean, their day. Yeah, what a what what a yeah. I don't know how less frivolous and meaningful fashion can possibly be and, yeah. and textiles, really.
0: Yeah. Uh, on a on a brighter, more futuristic note, um, we've obviously referenced Nanny Fine. <laughs> My uh-huh. spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you going to be Yetta in, as uh, as the 70-year-old uh, Frida Las Vegas? Oh, my God. I'm going to be Yetta now. I'm Yetta now. I'm actually Sylvia now.
1: <laughs> I'm a 60-year-old nagging mother as a as a 34-year-old without kids. But <laughs> yeah. to answer your question, yes, I, I, I will be. But, God, she was just... That show, oh, my goodness. I, I, I was obsessed with it as a teenager. Her clothes... Oh. And I think maybe as you were saying before with Frida Kahlo, I mean, you know, you wouldn't. She was Jewish. Like, yes. She didn't have blonde hair. She she wasn't the sort of tan
0: blonde Anglo she role was, model. Even though she was teeny tiny, she was still curvy as well. Yeah. You know, she still had hips. You know, like that, that's the, right. Even, she wasn't a straight up and down shape that most teenage girls can't. Relate that's to. right. And she yeah. had
1: the she had the big hair and the sort of that sort of European sense of the bombastic, glamorous woman and seeing Fran's dynasty with Sylvia and Yetta and, yeah. you know, Aunt Frida and, like, their whole family. Yeah. You know, the, the the genius of that show, as everyone knows now, is the costuming and yeah. how to compare them with the straight lace, uptight, you know, Anglo-centric Sheffield family yes. and seeing how glitter gold texture big hair sequins feathers like you know that was the language of i think at the time it was played for like lower class yeah you know this is the the lower class working family from queens and now we look at that show through a different lens and go oh my god they look fabulous like the sheffield kids are boring they you know they may have had the
0: the great house and the social pedigree, but everyone wanted to be the fine. Even in the, the lyrics of the credits, what is it? Um, everybody else is wearing tan. Yeah. Just, it was such a perfect way to encapsulate that difference, wasn't and it? And Cece Babcock was such a,
1: like, Celine poster woman. <laughs> and she, her costuming was beautiful too, and she, she was a fantastic actress, Lauren Lane. But, I mean, Fran, she was a comedian, and she was a glamorous comedian, and yeah. that was something else that I... I looked up to, and I thought, "Wow, isn't it great that you can you can be funny, but you can also have style? Like, what yeah. an interesting! Uh, you don't really see too many of those pop up in pop culture. Well, at the time, um, but you know, she was parroting her idol, her idol Lucille Ball, and she did such a great job of it. But yeah. yeah, I love, I love Fran, and watching watching The Nanny this year through the sort of lockdown April, May, June months was like a soothing balm of the soul <laughs> just oh, take me back to 90s new york
0: <laughs> stab thank you for bringing that sense of fun and joy to the australian fashion market thank you and thank you so much for coming here today and sharing your style oh, story with me Thank you, i'm
1: very pleased to be here thanks for asking me <laughs> my pleasure
0: stab is a girl who cites nanny fine as her spirit animal and it's not hard to see why Between the big hair, the bold, brash designs and the warm embrace of her upbringing and ethnic roots, she may as well be the modern day Fran Drescher. That's not to mention her beguiling sassy swagger or her quick wit, oi. While Stav's glittery exterior may seem like some sort of kitsch exaggeration or costume of sorts, she truly does hold a deep personal connection to her designs and to how she expresses herself. Whether you're Katy Perry, an infamous drag queen, or just a foxy lady from suburbia, it's her shtick to promote self-confidence to all that come to visit the world of Frida Las Vegas. And it's Stab Style to make sure everyone's invited. If you enjoyed this episode of Style Stories, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, thanks for listening.